You're listening to TIP. Really, it starts with, you know, looking where, where are the shortages right now? Where are the, uh, where are the hurdles and the roadblocks to our lives and what is really changing in our lives? And for those, you see things like virtual healthcare. Uh, there's a massive nursing shortage out there as well as just the overall demand for healthcare. And people are learning how to use that virtually and, and how to get those services virtually, not only to ease that demand shortage and the labor shortage, but also just the cost of it as well. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joseph Hogue. Joseph runs a community of over 500,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money. During the show, Joseph and I chat about how he constructs his own stock portfolio, what sectors tend to perform well during a financial crisis, what long-term emerging trends Joseph is bullish on, what the driver of profitability will be in the digital wallet space, how you can get a near risk-free 9% return on your money today, Yes, you heard that right. A near risk-free 9% return in 2022, where investors can find some level of safety in today's market environment and much more. What interested me most in this conversation was Joseph talking about iSavings bonds, which today give investors a near guaranteed 9% return backed by the US government. Make sure you stick around until the end to hear that part of our conversation. This episode is jam-packed with great insights, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Joseph Hogue. Joseph, pleasure having you on the show. Hey, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. To help set the stage for our conversation, let's start by just chatting about your overall investment strategy. How do you think about constructing your own portfolio and which asset classes do you include and why? Sure. Well, I do start with that asset allocation, those asset classes, uh, because I think even when some of the assets aren't doing as well as you'd like, uh, like bonds over the last four or five months, you still do need some kind of exposure to them, if not directly in bonds, then some kind of bond-like alternative uh, that gives you that safety from stocks, right? What we're seeing in stocks right now. So I do start with that asset, that higher level asset approach, where I'll have a certain amount of stocks, bonds, real estate, a big real estate investor. I started my career as an analyst in commercial property even into alternatives like a little bit in crypto, a little bit in tax liens, which are kind of sometimes that bond alternative because you do have that guarantee, that payment, or you get the asset on that. So really that high level approach. And then I'll go down within the, the stock portfolio portion and use kind of a core satellite strategy. One of my favorite strategies for investing, really uh, you know, putting together, maybe actually it's about 60% of my own portfolio, 60% in just basic ETFs, funds, Funds that cover even the asset classes. So I'll have a dividend fund in there. I'll have a stock market fund in there, a bond fund, a real estate fund. So covering uh, real estate stocks and REITs, you know, it really takes the stress off of investing, having a large part of your portfolio in those, just those core ETFs, those core funds. You're going to get the, uh, the market return on those assets and on those diversified funds. You don't have to worry about it. There's sometimes months before I'll even look at my that core fund part of my portfolio because I know they're diversified. I know no news or no single stock is going to destroy that fund. And then with the rest of the, uh, the portfolio, with the 35, 40% of your portfolio, you can invest in a small handful of individual stocks, right? And since you are limited to how much, you have, how much money you have left over to put into those stocks, then you're very limited to the number of stocks you can invest in and the time it takes to follow those stocks, to analyze them and, 
and to keep up with them. So it's a great way to get the market return, make sure you're getting the market return on the, the core part of your portfolio, still give yourself a little bit of an upside potential on those individual stocks, but limit it in a sense that you don't need to spend, you don't need to always be looking for that next hot stock to invest in. You've got maybe 10 or 20 stocks at the most, individual stocks that you can buy and, and hold forever. And then finally, for picking those individual stocks, I like to follow kind of a top-down approach, right? Go into with those macro trends, those long-term forces affecting the market, changing, changing the world in which we live in, and really dr- using that to drill down into, into those individual stocks. Yeah, you're definitely taking more of a diversified approach. You mentioned a number of different asset classes. And today we're going to be talking a lot about kind of your individual stock investing strategy. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned looking at those long-term macro trends. Has your strategy changed at all over the past, say, six to 12 months with the higher inflation we've seen and just the overall stock market correction that's come along with that? I did position out of some of the bonds, the bond portion I did have or 10 to 15% of my portfolio in bonds for that safety. But as you start seeing the inflation creep up and you know the Fed is going to get aggressive at raising those interest rates, then it was just a recipe for disaster in bonds and in bond funds. So I did reallocate some of that money towards a little bit more bond-like investments. Like I said, tax liens, uh, the I-bonds, which we can talk about as a great investment right now, as well as you know some of those more bond-like uh, stocks like consumer staples, utilities, Things like that. So I did position out of those. I will say now, as we move further into 2022, it looks like interest rates on the long end of the curve have uh, have kind of stabilized a little bit. So I think bonds are going back into a little bit more attractive investment, going to be providing a little bit more of that safety that you traditionally get from bonds. You have a very popular YouTube channel. I had the opportunity to check out some of your videos. And you've mentioned that you expect the inflation rate to come down a little bit, maybe not down to the 2 or 3% range, maybe call it 5% going forward. How can we as investors benefit from that trend if we expect inflation to come down a little bit and you know stabilize a little bit higher than the 2 or 3%? Will that lead to some sort of sector rotation, say benefiting value stocks from the growth? Or how do you think about projecting that forward and maybe that trend in the future? We did start seeing the consumer price index, so that CPI report, the main consumer inflation report. We did see that come down uh, just very marginally uh, there in April, which was reported here in May. Uh, We are expecting that to continue to come down just slightly over the next few months. And I think really that does provide some kind of a, a modest relief rally on stocks in general. It's really been the main driver of, right, of higher interest rates, of the Fed having to raise its rates by half a percent each meeting. So if we do get that kind of continued moderation in inflation, uh, which is expected, then, then I think you do start to see a little bit less pressure, uh, downward pressure on stocks. I think that plus just the overall fact that it is still a strong economy. The consumer is still spending. Bank accounts are still rising and uh, consumer credit, consumer spending is still increasing. So I do think we get some kind of a relief rally here in the summer. That said, you know, as you mentioned, I, I do expect inflation to be higher, not necessarily as high as it is now, but still you know, 4 or 5%, over the next year. And that's just going to push the, uh, the Fed to remain fairly aggressive. right? It's still over its projections for the next year. I think the market is pricing in the very much uh, the likelihood of a recession over the next 12 or 18 months. I think that's very likely the case. So I do think after you get that, maybe that quick bounce here in the summer, get a little bit higher on some of your stock picks, I do think you should start looking towards stuff that is going to protect you in the event of a recession, right? Because I do think you know, as we move into later into this year, into 2023, and we start looking at a little bit slower economic growth and eventually a recession, I do think the market adjusts back down for that. 
I've actually been looking at a lot of research lately on the channel, looking at what stocks did in actually it did in October 2007 through March 2009. So really the worst part of the last recession. And there's some really interesting results, right? The actual, the individual stocks, uh, auto parts did actually did really well. Uh, so you've got things like advanced auto parts, you got O'Reilly that actually held up really well. And there's some intuitive reasons for that. You know, If people aren't buying new cars, then they're looking at fixing up their old cars. Dreg makers, a little bit more obvious, did, did well. Gilead Sciences, Abbott Labs. Obviously, you, know, you have to buy your heart medication, whether the, uh, the market is higher or lower. Uh, so those did well. And of course, the discount stores, uh, things like Dollar General, Ross stores all did well as consumers shift their spending from the higher end stuff down into where they're going to get more bang for their buck. Right. I think you do start looking for stocks in the consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, even to protect yourself a little bit from what we could see as another leg lower in the markets in the 2023. You know, you mentioned a potential recession coming up, and we are seeing weakening consumer demand. This just this week, we saw Walmart and Target earnings. You know, both stocks are down over 20%. So it's going to be just an interesting road ahead to watch as investors that are active in the market. The Investors Podcast Network was founded on you know, studying Warren Buffett's principles of value investing. And our flagship show, We Study Billionaires, they recently added William Green to the team. And he just interviews some of these fantastic investors, you know, Bill Miller, Joel Greenblatt, Ray Dalio, and the list goes on. So I'm curious, you, know, you have this really balanced approach. Who are some investors that have had a profound impact on your development and you know, how you developed your own approach? Oh, well, obviously there's the big ones, the Bill Millers and Peter Lynch. Great book by Peter Lynch there, of course. But I tend to go on the side of economists a lot. Goldman Sachs, Abby Joseph Cohen, I follow her a lot. Uh, Moody's, uh, the Moody's economist, Mark Zandi, a great economist, always had some really great insight on the market. And so I tend to follow these economists with that big picture because I think it's, it's much easier to get that big picture right, to see those overarching trends and the forces on the market. And then use that to drill down and make your own decisions really as far as what sectors are going to benefit from those large macroeconomic trends and then what stocks and what industries within those sectors are going to do best. I tend to follow mostly the economists and that big picture idea. You know, I mentioned the Investors Podcast Network and we study billionaires, but this podcast is geared more towards millennials, since the name of our show, Millennial Investing. How do you think millennials and maybe younger investors should think about their investments and in preparing for retirement in this you know, very difficult market environment? Just thank God you're not a, a late Gen Xer right? Uh, that's getting ready to retire right now. I think a lot of that success in retirement is really based on things like that, that are beyond your control, like when you're investing, that timing, whether the market crashes hard that year that you're trying to invest and wipes out a lot of the money right when you need it. In the near term, People are, are kind of screwed, but the millennials actually have an opportunity, I think. You know, for millennials, don't get scared out of the market, keep investing. Although you do need a plan for how you're going to invest your cash and how you're going to take advantage if the market does continue to fall. But, you know, I always point to the, uh, the example of Amazon, right? Uh, Amazon crashed, IPO'd in 1997, all the way up to something like $200 a share, crashed down to $5.60 in 2001, I believe it was really the bottom of the, uh, the tech bubble. The bubble burst, and uh, so five dollars and sixty cents a share. Uh, now it's you know recently it was up as high as thirty five hundred. It's still up you know after falling down, still up to twenty two hundred dollars a share. So imagine being able to get that stock at uh, you know less than six dollars a share. Uh, it's you know something like a five thousand percent return. You know, understand that with enough time, a lot of these growth stocks, these stocks that are changing our lives, uh, changing their industry and, and how we live, 
those are still going to be great investments. When you do get closer to a retirement, so a little bit kind of a longer term planning, obviously for anyone that 20, 20 plus years uh, until they retire here, uh, you really need to keep in the back of your mind what happened to people that were planning on retiring in 2008, in 2022, when those years came around. And understand that 10 years before you need that money, 10 years before you retire, or you're planning on retiring, uh, then you do need to shift a little bit towards those, that capital preservation rather than growth. Okay, don't keep on just don't keep on following those growth stocks all the way up to uh, your retirement day, right? Uh, you need to you know slowly shift your portfolio into a little bit more bonds, a little bit more the safety sectors like consumer staples, utilities, things like that, into other investments that don't have that that risk. And then as you go even more aggressive into five years out, by the time you're five years out of retirement, you cannot afford to to have a market crash wipe out twenty or thirty or forty percent of your portfolio, and because you just you know you don't have the time to to let the market rebound from that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. It's funny you mention, you know, the example of Amazon. I've been reading up and studying up on Bill Miller a lot, and he bought the Amazon IPO, split adjusted. It was $1.50 per share. He wrote it all the way up and down the tech bubble, and he was buying a lot of it after the crash, too. You know, you mentioned below $6 a share. And today, outside of Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Scott, he's the largest individual shareholder of Amazon, which is just an incredible story of. It is. I think it's a lesson too for investors, uh, even investors uh, just starting out. I'm always amazed. People love to buy stocks as the prices are going up. Uh, people that get exuberant over the last couple of years, you know, millions of people have joined stock investing sites, love to keep pushing money in. But then when stocks start falling, they, keep, they panic, they sell out and they leave the market when in fact, that is the best time to buy, right? Uh, you know, Stocks are now giving you a discount on those prices that you loved it at 100. Why not at 80? Right? Why not at 60? And I know it hurts to see that stock continue to fall, but just like that Amazon example, if you were even if you had bought initially at that peak, you know, two hundred dollars a share, if you bought all the way down into six dollars a share, uh, it's two thousand, three thousand dollars a share now. Don't panic out of the market, you know. Don't get scared out of the market. Just keep on investing every month, every quarter, and uh, and take advantage of of what will eventually be a great opportunity at these prices. On the flip side, there's compelling data that says that most active managers aren't able to beat some simple index fund like in, you know, an S&P 500 over a long enough period of time. So with that, I'm curious what brought you to the world of individual stocks? Is it just a love for the game and studying the markets or why do you add that approach to your portfolio? I think it's you know a story a lot of people can relate to, right? It starts with new stories of, of Peter Lynch and Bill Miller, you know, that it is possible to beat the market over a long period of time, even if it's not likely. It is possible. Add in a bull market where everybody seems to be getting rich on picking stocks, and then maybe sprinkle in a little bit of that 20-something bravado that you can't be wrong. And you've got all the makings of a stock picker. And even after some of those lessons in momentum investing and growth stocks and market timing that, that we all have to learn the hard way by losing money. Even after that, uh, there's still a sense of that risk-taking and that addiction to stock picking that remains. If Jack Bogle had his way, God rest his soul, we would all invest in a three or a five fund portfolio, right? And never look at our stock funds and, and just ride the market up. I think investing has to be a little bit more interesting than watching paint dry, right? To, get, to keep people interested, right? To keep people investing their money and putting it to work because the payoff is decades out in the future, right? So what kind of a motivation is that? The possible promise of something in the future for, for that sacrifice right now. You know, it has to be a little bit more interesting than watching paint dry, which, uh, which I think is a great way to do that is just to have a small portion of your portfolio in, in the stock picking idea. While you, know, you have that core part, maybe 60, 70% or, or whatever in those funds uh, you know, to get that market return. It's funny you mentioned earlier that a lot of people are running out the door right now with many of these stocks pulling back. And 
really, it's just a really good opportunity to start researching those long-term trends because, you know, right now no one's excited about stocks. So that's when you should start to become excited. You know, the Warren Buffett quote, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. You know, my next question for you was, how do you balance that interest in stock picking with the goal for long-term market returns, given all the mistakes that active investing can bring with choosing the right company, choosing the right trend and such? Well, I do, uh, you know, beyond that core satellite approach where you have most of your money in funds and then the very small portion in uh, individual stocks within that small portion is just a very small, you know, maybe 20 or 30% of that. So really only 10 or maybe even 15% of all your portfolio in those individual stocks that you're picking for growth or or you're individually picking up. So if I own 20, 25 stocks, then the majority of them, maybe 10 or, or so, or 15, will be uh, you know good long-term dividend stocks, uh, Warren Buffett type stocks, things like that. But then I will have a portion of my portfolio where I'm going for those moonshot investments. I'm going, uh, investing on those growth trends. I, I'm trying to find the next Amazon. Even if I'm wrong on one of those stocks, they're not a, a huge part of the portfolio. But if I'm right, and they do anything like uh, what we've seen in Amazon or Netflix or some of these other stocks, uh, then they can still add significantly to the portfolio. Again, I think it's just a really great way to keep investing interesting for people, keep them motivated to to invest, uh, and keep them right time in the market rather than trying to time the market. I think it's a great idea, a great way to do that without really pushing all your money, all your portfolio to those that stock picking and the gross stocks idea. Yeah, you hit on this idea of you know having some asymmetric bets in your portfolio where your downside is limited to what you have invested but your upside is you know multiples upon multiples of whatever you have invested in you told me that you are looking for those trends starting with that kind of top down approach is like finding okay what trends are we seeing today that are going to continue for many years to come so what are some of those trends that you're really bullish on long term I'm looking at a few, and really, it starts with you know looking where where are the shortages right now? Where are the uh, where are the hurdles and the roadblocks to our lives, and what is really changing in our lives? And for those, you see things like virtual healthcare. Uh, there's a massive nursing shortage out there, as well as just the overall demand for healthcare. And people are learning how to use that virtually and and how to get those services virtually, not only to ease that demand shortage and the labor shortage, but also just the cost of it as well. You've also got digital wallets. You know, we are increasingly thinking about our money in terms of zeros and ones instead of dollar bills, right? Uh, it is increasingly going on online. I think I saw a, a survey uh, recently that uh, something like 70, 80% of people now have a digital wallet or pay digitally to pay their bills digitally, that kind of thing. Uh, so that is a, definitely a trend that's increasing into the future. And then commercial self driving, right? Uh, self driving vehicles in the commercial space and trucking, huge uh, supply shortage for truckers, for labor. Right now, as well as you know, the increase in costs and wages that we're seeing across all jobs, I think those are really the three largest trends that I'm following that are going to change our lives over the next ten years. You know, once you identify these trends, how do you think about selecting the companies that you believe will be the winners? Do you try and take more of a diversified approach, or are you trying to select maybe the one or two biggest names, or how do you think about that? And does sure. that differ between some of these trends? Well, yeah, a lot of times it will depend on the trend. Uh, if, if it's something that's going to affect the entire industry or, or sector, then maybe I'll go with uh, multiple companies in that, something like commercial trucking, which I think uh, you know, if you look at these, these trucking companies, they pay upwards of 30 or 40% of their operating costs are for their truck drivers. If you take even a portion of that out of the mix, operating margins for, for the entire industry are just going to skyrocket. I would start uh, for something like that, I would go into uh, multiple companies. And you got to understand with, these t- with this top-down type of investing, 
So where you're starting at the macro forces, the economic forces, and then drilling down downward into stocks, there's still a little bit of a, a top or a bottom up stock picking as well. So you know, once you've found that industry you want to invest in, you're still looking for the best of the breed companies in those, the companies with the better operating margin, with the better sales growth. So really trying to pick, to pick the better companies out of there. But within that, I would pick uh, the top two or three companies, maybe like a, a Knight Swift Transportation, maybe a JB Hunt. Uh, JB Hunt is also a good company in that space. In those other, those other trends where there is a clear demonstrative leader in that space, uh, something like, okay, so digital wallets, in actually the same survey that I was reading that showed something like 80% of people use a digital wallet or, or pay digitally, it also showed which digital apps they use. And the top two was PayPal and uh, the Cash App, right? It's almost the top two, uh, something like 60% of the respondents used a PayPal service. I think PayPal, beyond that digital wallet, also has a lot of other great investments and great products. I think that's a clear competitive advantage in that space. Uh, so I invested in that. Within virtual healthcare, it's obviously Teladoc is a command, large and commanding lead, as well as the size and the scope advantage over any other company in virtual healthcare. I would go with something like that. You know, if there's a clear leader with a competitive advantage over all others. I'm particularly interested in the digital wallet space. Do you think it's the data that these companies own that they're going to be able to benefit from this trend? Or what do you think will be the driver of profitability going forward? Well, I think in digital wallets itself, so there's a lot of other drivers within the digital wallet space, though. I think it's really the cross-promotion of different services and products within that. So right now, both Venmo and Cash App, they don't really monetize those users very well. Basically, it's just they're just offering the service for people to use. In the future, I think they move on to more, much more of an integrated financial services idea, whereas where that Cash App or where that service is much more of a financial institution, right? So they're offering brokerage, they're offering uh, insurance, they're offering all those related services, even loans, right? Within that, so I think it's much more uh, turns the digital wallets in much more into a traditional bank or a financial institution, and. You know, if you look at the monetization potential in that, you know what they can get off of the margins on each of those services, it's just insane, right? You look at the hundreds of millions of people using those digital wallets, and basically you, you, know, you have a conglomerate of financial services in each of those, being able to sell to each of those people and really integrate all those services and all those products into the one. I mean, you could see both of those, in fact, PayPal and Square. I like PayPal because I think it's a little bit, bit more focused on financial services and, and payment rather than Square, whereas that is, it's, it's a little bit further into the blockchain and, and Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. 
That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about some of these long-term growth trends cuz you know, you just look at any growth stock, you know, it had that massive run up post-COVID going through 2021 and now essentially all of them are back down to around where it was like call it pre-COVID, like PayPal. I just checked was in the $80 range and you know, I think in the March 2020 crash it was around that same point. You know, if you dig into some of these trends and find one that you believe could be a long term winner, then I think you could really find some really good long term opportunities when everyone else is like worried about, oh, like the growth sector is really down. And yeah, so I just think there's a really good opportunity in the, you know, some of these sectors. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And it's another thing, it's another behavior, I guess, of investors that, that always amazes me. They'll look at a stock chart and see that, yeah, PayPal's down, you know, 60, 70, 80%. Teladoc is down. SoFi is down another great financial services stock, but they'll automatically assume it's a bad investment. Well, yeah, a year ago, a year ago, it was a bad investment because it was trading for 20 and 30 and 40 times price to sales, just ungodly price, you know, price valuations. But now, you know, you cannot just look at the past stock price on that chart to, to see whether it's a good investment or not. You really do have to analyze it from forward, from going forward. And this goes for people that invested in these stocks, you know, a year ago at these peaks. I know it sucks to, to look at your portfolio and see red and wonder if these stocks are ever going to get back up to that point. But that money's in the past, right? Even if it's just a paper loss right now, that money's in the past. You have to look at what is expected of these stocks, of these companies in the future. Uh, the valuation right now, you've got stocks that were trading at, like I said, 30 and 40 times price to sales valuation uh, last year are now down to you know four and five times price to sales and still growing their revenue, still growing their sales at 20 and 30% a year. As we sit here today, 
yeah, it sucks to be down 80% on some of these if you've already invested in them. But if they produce that 15 or 20% annualized return over the next 10 years, even, that's still going to be a great investment. So you really do need to look at these in the current market, in the current price, and not worry about what's in the past. Switching gears a little bit, you recently had a video that really piqued my interest. It was a video that covered I savings bonds. And this was something that I've never really dug into. So I'd really like to chat about it during our conversation today. You know, today an I savings bond is a bond that is offered by the US government. And I believe the interest rate now is around nine percent, which seems absurd, you know, given that. I'm a younger investor and kind of used to this low interest rate environment where you can't really get any guaranteed interest. Could you give our audience a rundown on what these iSavings bonds are? Sure. Well, these things really came out of nowhere, right? And again, I think this is probably one of the best investments for investors right now, not only for the interest rate, but but also for the safety. Uh, It's really kind of a a matter of right time, the right place for these things. Uh, But basically, these are savings bonds. So they are backed by the full faith and credit of the treasury. Right, and I know there's a lot of eye rolls uh, happening out there right now with uh, you know full faith and credit of the government. But if the government ever stops paying on its treasury bonds or savings bonds, we're, we've got a lot more bigger problems than just you know money. Okay, these things are safe, pretty much safest investments you're going to have right now. They are offering 9.6 percent over the next six months, and that's the thing about these things. When you buy them, they have a, a fixed component of the interest rate and an inflation component. Right, so every six months. They go into the uh, the consumer price index. They look at you know what inflation is like, and they adjust the interest rate for these bonds or for these I bonds. So, and in the past with inflation so low, they've never really paid a whole lot. But now they're paying nine point six percent over the next six months. Even if inflation comes down, they're only going to come down a little bit. So, you know, you're looking at probably nine percent uh, next six months, maybe seven seven percent six months after that if inflation comes down, something like that. Now, you do have to hold these for at least a year. They're as savings bonds. You have you have a lockup period, so you hold them for a year. But I think with the Fed expected to raise interest rates well through even 2024, we're going to have stock market weakness, volatility, all this well over a year. So I think investors are going to need at least a year of that protection. You do. So you hold them for more than a year. If you pay, if you sell within five years, then you lose like three months of interest, right? Which, you know, really 10% interest a year, it's, it's really not that significant. So you lose a little bit of the interest, but it's only three months. Uh, you hold them for 18 months, 24 months, whatever. Uh, you still got a great interest rate. Like I said, I think it's just the right place at the right time with the right thing, with the right investment. You've got almost a 10% interest rate backed and guaranteed by the government. So it's completely safe. And it's going to protect you from really any kind of stock market swings we see over the next year. Now, it is limited to $10,000 per person. You know, it's, it doesn't help quite as much for those higher portfolios where you need to protect a large part of your portfolio. But uh, it's still going to protect 10% or $10,000 of your money. You're going to get 10% of uh, return on it for probably about the next year, I'd say. Yeah, the $10,000 limit is the big kicker, I think, for a lot of people wanting that guaranteed income. It reminds me a lot of tips where they offer this sort of inflation protection. What's the difference between an I savings bonds and tips? And you know, why is there even two different kind of inflation protected you know, securities issued by the government? Well, I think the government, uh, they just started uh, saving the I bonds, uh, I think in 1996 or 1998, uh, right? So they're relatively new. And I think they were made to specifically address uh, that inflation and give a little bit higher return than some of these other like tips or some of these other bonds. Uh, so you do get a little bit higher return on I bonds, especially when inflation is higher. There are other d- subtle differences though. Uh, I bonds don't make interest payments. They basically, they just put that interest into the value of your bond. So you get more back when you do sell them. Uh, whereas tips pay that coupon every six months. 
but they're quite a bit heavier tax burden on the tips. So you're paying that interest every year that you're collecting those in, those coupon payments. They do have a little bit of an inflation adjustment within the principal. So they do add a little bit to your principal amount, but a lot of it is going to be from that coupon payment. Tips have a secondary market, so you can buy and sell those and there's no lockup period and no limit. So those are a little bit better for the higher portfolio owners that, that need to protect a little bit more of their portfolio uh, for that. But I'd say have both. I think you know, I prefer I-bonds. I think that's the, the higher, obviously the, the higher interest rate or the higher yield. So you have 10,000 in that. And uh, you know, if you want to protect more of your money, you have, you have some tips as well. For those investors wanting more safety in you know, whatever portion of their portfolio, you, know, you have the I-bonds, you have the tips, you have other bonds. What are some other relatively safe investment vehicles that investors can use that don't have much downside to them? Well, I think I, I mean you can go out to uh, go, out, go out into alternative investments uh, like tax liens. Big part of my portfolio right now, uh, you know, as a kind of an alternative to bonds, right? Uh, so tax liens basically every county assesses property taxes against the real estate. If those taxes aren't paid, then they put a lien against the property and then sell that lien to an investor, right? You know, you can get all the way upwards of two percent a month on these liens, right? And you know, it ends up being closer to right around 15, 18% annualized uh, on a lot of times because these are paid off. These are generally paid off pretty quickly actually by either the mortgage owners, the banks, or the real estate owners themselves, the property owners, because they are backed by the property. You know, you buy these at a county auction and if they're not paid off uh, within a certain amount of time, usually a couple of years, then that property goes to those lien holders. Uh, so it's it's actually a way to build a real estate portfolio as well if you end up getting some of these liens you know, satisfied through the property. But in the meantime, you know, it is backed by the property. It's relatively safer and you're pretty sure going to get your, uh, you know, get and get the interest because nobody wants to lose their property to just the, the property taxes. So those are a great choice, actually high yield on those as well. I would actually even start looking at, uh, start looking at the shorter term bonds. You know, like I said at the beginning, I think a lot of the interest rate increase that we've seen has really worked its way through. We're actually starting to see longer term interest rates come down a little bit on those fears of a recession. So I think the bonds are attractively priced here. I would stick with maybe the shorter term bond funds like the Vanguard BSV, which is the Vanguard short term bond fund. It's not going to lose its value uh, quite as fast when if interest rates keep on going higher, but it is still to provide something like a, I want to say like a two and a half percent dividend yield, as well as that safety, that preservation. Even with the sell-off in bonds this year, if you look at if you compare what the BSV has done compared to stocks or even compared to longer term bonds. I think it's down maybe 6%, 7% against a, a stock sell-off of, of 17 18% or, or 30% in the NASDAQ tech stocks. So still some of that capital preservation, uh, still some dividend yield and income. And I think you know, a little bit, little bit stronger going forward. Beyond that, you can get into some hedging with option strategies if you're, if you're doing any kind of options investing. Uh, and you know, obviously, I would warn, warn people against the speculative kind of uh, options investing that people have been doing over the last couple of years, uh, really trying to get those leveraged bets. Uh, but there are a lot of ways to use options where you can actually lower your risk. Things like covered calls, things like uh, protective puts. You know, maybe you're selling a call option against a stock you own uh, that gives you a little bit of cash income on that stock. Uh, it does limit your upside a little bit, but it also you know hedges the downside in that stock. Great way to lower your risk just marginally in some of the stocks that you wanna you wanna keep on holding. Yeah, related to the short-term bond fund, you know, I just pulled that up and it definitely looks like something that's definitely stable. There's going to be a lot of downside protection for you there, assuming you don't need it. There might be like, if there's a sharp recessionary type scenario, there could be like a sharp drawdown, but historically it's always recovered pretty fast once it that happens. Joseph, 
that's all I had for you today. I really, really appreciate you coming onto the show. Before I let you go, I'd like to give you a handoff to the audience on where they can get connected with you and what you're up to. Sure. Well, I appreciate it, Clay. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Love seeing people over at the channel. Let's Talk Money there on YouTube. I love seeing people as a part of the community there. If you're the reader, uh, the blog reader, you can always uh, visit me at mystockmarketbasics.com. Uh, it's the blog where I really share you know, what I learned and what my experience as a venture capital analyst, uh, private wealth management, and really bringing that experience into the stock basics and regular investors. Awesome. I'll be sure to link all of those in the show notes for the audience. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it. Thanks, Clay. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.